fun in the Hall of Mirrors. What were the aims of the Big Three at the Paris Peace Conference? At the end of the First World War in November 1918, a ceasefire was signed. That's not the end of a war. That just means you've stopped shooting at each other. In order to actually end the war, there needs to be a peace conference and there needs to be a peace treaty signed between all of the warring sides. It is important to remember the context of Europe at this point. Europe has been shattered by this war. An entire generation of young men is gone. Britain and the Empire lost one million men. France lost 1.4 million. Even the USA, who only joined the war in 1917, have lost about 100,000 men. On top of that, there are 20 million wounded. And we're talking about horrific wounds. We're talking about life-changing wounds. So, there is a massive public outpouring of anti-war sentiment and also anti-German sentiment. Everybody blames Germany for the war. And it is against this background that 32 states attend the peace conference in Paris in 1919. Now it's important to remember that these 32 states did not include some people. Firstly, they did not include any of the defeated powers Germany, Austria-Hungary, Turkey. They also did not include Russia, who firstly is concerned with their own affairs, they're in the middle of a civil war, but secondly they've become an international pariah because they are now communist. So now that you know what the 32 states who attended actually consisted of, it's also important to remember that those 32 states were not equal. In actuality, almost all of the decisions there were taken by three people representing three countries. They are known as the Big Three. And if you are to understand why the Treaty of Versailles looked like it did, indeed, why any of the peace treaties, the Treaty of Saint-Germain, the Treaty of Trianon, why any of them looked like they did. You have to understand the aims of these three people because they were not compatible. And the Treaty of Versailles, for good or ill, was born out of the compromises made by these three people between their three sets of incompatible aims. So, who are they? Firstly, there is Georges Clemenceau. He is the Prime Minister of France. There is David Lloyd George. He is the Prime Minister of Great Britain. And there is Woodrow Wilson, the President of the United States of America. These three men, between them, decide the shape of Europe for the next 20 years. And each of them, as I say, wanted different things. So, who were they, and what did they want? Firstly, Georges Clemenceau. He is by far the oldest of the three by the time we reach the peace conference. He's 78. And that's important because he has now lived through two invasions of France. In 1870 
and again in 1914. Both of those invasions were by Germany. So one of his main aims is to increase the security of France against any further invasion by Germany. He is also dealing with a huge mass of public opinion in France which wants Germany to be punished. The war was fought in northwest France. The country has been wrecked, ruined. Agriculture, factories, cities, villages, the very fabric of the country has been ripped apart by four years of war and the French public want Germany to pay for this. Not just pay in terms of being punished but also practically pay for the damage. So the key idea for what France is after is revenge and compensation. So we can then say that Georges Clemenceau's aims at the Paris Peace Conference can be summed up as security and that will be gained by keeping Germany weak and stopping it from recovering so that it is not in a position to attack France again. Therefore, his main demands will be the return of Alsace-Lorraine, that Germany will pay the costs of the war, and also that Germany will be disarmed. Germany will no longer have the military capability of attacking France. The second person is David Lloyd George. He's 56 years old at this point. He's the youngest of the three. He served in the British government for some considerable time. He was there during the Agadir crisis of Chancellor of the Exchequer. He became Prime Minister during the war and he led Britain to victory. He has just, when he arrives in Paris for the peace conference, won an election in 1918. And his campaign that he has fought was fought very much on the platform of making Germany pay. Indeed, two of the slogans were make Germany pay and hang the Kaiser. This is to feed into the huge public opinion in Britain which wants Germany punished. So that is where Lloyd George is coming from as he comes to Paris. There's only one problem. He does not agree with public opinion in Britain. He does not want Germany weakened. He does not want Germany destroyed for a number of reasons. Firstly, Britain lives or dies by trade. Trade is the thing that keeps the empire running. Trade is the thing that keeps Britain great. It is therefore in Lloyd George's best interest to ensure that the German economy recovers as quickly as it possibly can. Secondly, he does not want any form of an agreement that is so harsh that Germany cannot accept it. Because the danger here is that if Germany is pushed too far, if the people of Germany can see no other way out, they might, just might, follow the example of Russia. And there may be a revolution, and Germany may go communist. Do not underestimate the fear of communism in the early years of the 20th century traveling right through until after the Second World War. Communism is an existential threat to the existing power structures in any other country in Europe.
It is a direct challenge to the very survival of the people who run those countries. Communism is seen as the greatest of all possible evils. Therefore, Lloyd George is terrified at the prospect of Germany going communist. And so he will do everything in his power to ensure that the treaty does not push Germany over the edge. Alongside this, his main focus is going to be ensuring that Britain maintains its supremacy of the sea. And this is going to put him on a direct collision course with the third of the big three, as you will see shortly. It's worth remembering that these conflicting demands upon Lloyd George put him in the position of being the compromiser, of being the broker between the other two big three. On the one hand, Georges Clemenceau, who is after revenge and punishment, and on the other hand, Wilson from the US, who has a completely different approach, as we'll see in a second. Lloyd George, because he wants to ensure that Germany remains strong and part of the democratic group of nations, finds himself very much in the middle. So the third of the big three is Woodrow Wilson. President of the United States, member of the Democratic Party, and he's aged 63 by the time we reach 1919. In 1918, he published what were called his 14 points. These, for him, are absolutely key. He is an idealist. He wants a better world. He believes that everybody can just get along if everybody is just a little bit nicer to each other. So he draws up a list of 14 points. Now there are a couple which aren't really relevant because they're to do with border settlements in various places in the Balkans. But the key ideas behind the 14 points are worth remembering. Firstly, the idea that countries should be open and honest with each other. So, no more lies, no more secret backroom deals. Everything should be out in the open and dealt with in an open forum. And secondly, as far as possible, all borders, all disputes between countries should be settled on a principle of self-determination. That is, that people should be able to choose for themselves where it is that they live and who governs them. The 14 points then, can be summed up as follows. Point one, the end of all secret treaties. Point two, freedom of the seas. And you can immediately see why that is not going to go down well with David Lloyd George. Three, removal of all customs duties. Again, that's a direct threat to British supremacy. Four, reduction in armies and weapons. Well, Clemenceau is not going to go for that because he's worried about Germany attacking. He'll be quite happy to see Germany disarmed. 5. The future of colonies to be decided fairly. That's easy for America to say, they don't have any colonies. For countries like Britain, who live or die by the trade within their empire, that's going to be a problem. Point 13 calls for the creation of an independent Poland. This is an important part of self-determination, and is going to come back to haunt Europe as we go further into the 1920s and 1930s. Finally, point 14 which is an absolute key one, is about the creation of this idea of an open forum where conflicts between countries can be dealt with peacefully, without recourse to violence. And that is the formation of an association of nations to guarantee peace. 
This is the building block, the foundation stone for what will become the League of Nations. And this is the centre of Wilson's dream for everlasting peace between everybody. And as the conference goes on, the importance of point 14 to Wilson will become greater and greater and greater. One of the things you have to remember when we're talking about Wilson is that the USA had only been in the war since 1917. Therefore, he, and indeed his country, does not quite understand the strength of feeling in France and in Great Britain. He is not aware of the pressures of public opinion that are being brought to bear on Clemenceau and on Lloyd George. This then leads, during the negotiations, to him having to give way to Clemenceau, who is wanting a much more punitive approach. He also has his own uh, local problems, his own domestic political issues, because the Democratic Party is losing support and losing power in America due to a growing isolationism. Isolationism is something you'll need to be aware of as we go further through the 1920s because this is where America draws in on itself and refuses to have anything to do with the outside world. So as the conference goes on, it becomes more and more doubtful as to whether the USA will actually agree to sign the resulting treaty. In that case, Wilson pins more and more of his hopes on the idea of a League of Nations. He gives ground to Clemenceau, he gives ground to Lloyd George, all in order to secure support for his idea of the League of Nations because he honestly believes that that is the best chance of maintaining peace. So there you have it. These three very different men with very different agendas are driving the negotiations in Paris. And it is through these different aims that the Treaty of Versailles starts to take shape. Remember what each of the three men wanted out of the conference. And then, when you look at the treaty, the terms of the treaty, which is in another podcast, you can ask yourself, who got what they wanted? How much is the Treaty of Versailles a child of Clemenceau? How much is it the offspring of Lloyd George? How much of it belongs to Woodrow Wilson? And that is the only way to understand why it ends up like it does. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck in your exams.